Welcome to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group, a podcast for tech industry leaders and aspiring leaders focusing on transforming talented individuals into extraordinary teams. As always, we're virtual. I'm at home in Buckinghamshire. Vicky's over in deepest, darkest Oxfordshire, just down the road. Shah's a little further away in the Netherlands. Um, so today we have a very, very special guest indeed, an absolute legend, Mark Templeton of, among other places, Citrix, chap that I've had the pleasure of meeting on a couple of occasions. Um, two things to note, um, while I've met Mark, Vicky and Shah work with him more closely and work with him at Citrix for a number of years, so I'll be taking a little bit of a backseat on this one. And secondly, as we fully expect, that Mark has a number of pearls of wisdom to share with us. This will be a two-part episode, so you get two for the price of one on this occasion. So Mark, let's start with you. You were CEO of Citrix from 2001 to 2015. That is a long tenure in such a senior kind of a role um, compared to most CEOs. Do you have a standout highlight you could share? Well, Sam, first of all, thank you all uh, for having me as guest. And, um, you know, I enjoy doing uh, these kinds of uh, podcasts and and especially with uh, colleagues and friends. Um, it makes it extra special for me. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, was CEO for a long time, certainly um, as measured by just about anything compared to typical public company uh, CEOs. So over 14 years. And honestly, there are so many highlights over that period of time. I think um, if I had to highlight uh, just sort of one thing that in fact played out and lasted for many, many years, it was really all about being able to pursue uh, a vision that I truly deeply believed in, and that was enabling something we call the virtual workplace. And, um, and then, of course, in conjunction with that, um, uh, working with incredible employees and partners and customers around the world that shared that vision um, and, um, and also shared common values uh, that we held uh, very dear at Citrix, like respect, integrity, and humility. So um, that uh, highlight of creating virtual workplace vision and then making it real involved a, a project that we named Project X1 because we had to translate a vision and operationalize it into uh, a business proposition. And Project X1 um, was our big, hairy, audacious goal to grow from 500 million in 2003 to exceeding a billion in three years, 2006. And um, so, you know, we had the content of what we wanted to do, this notion of a virtual workplace and we operationalized it uh, through this Project X1. And X1, by the way, was named after the uh, rocket plane that uh, General Chuck Yeager uh, flew uh, to uh, be the first human to break the sound barrier. Very and, timely to mention that, I suppose. Yeah, yeah he, he just passed away at 97 years old and an amazing man, he actually came uh, to our uh, launch event 
um, spoke to all of us, uh, inspired uh, us, uh, told some great stories, and um, showed showed us, you know what a, you know what a true hero um, he was, and uh, in in terms of advancing science and doing so, you know, unconditionally. So X1 uh, and uh, the virtual workplace, in my mind, just lives on and on and on and on. Fantastic. So thanks for sharing that, Mark. I just want to say thank you before we uh, get going for joining Get Amplified. Um, you know, this podcast has been great fun for us and we've got now nearly over 2,000, 2,500, I think it is, Vicky, um, people that have listened to it. But we really were delighted when you agreed to do this because we feel like it's a bit of a Christmas present for our listeners. And so thank you so much. So I, I had a question for you. You know, I've been um, privileged to have worked at Citrix and I worked there for 14 and a half years. In fact, that was my tenure. And Last year, we had a, a European uh, reunion, if you remember, and you were kind enough to join us, albeit virtually, with David Jones. And there were over 100 people there, and the feeling in the room was just a family, and, and that was repeated. Everybody we spoke to, it was like seeing each other again for such a long time as a family. They've all gone on, a lot of those people have gone on to, to, to join amazing organizations themselves. Their grounding was at Citrix. And the one thing that we all talked about, we talked about the magic of the early days, you know? And that word also resonated throughout that 100 strong people. So what do you attribute that magic to? I, I think, you know, there are a number of reasons, but primarily, it was a combination of two things. So first, um, we had a product that some people actually called called magic middleware, okay? Because they were just so amazed by, you know, what it did, how well it worked and all of that, okay? And then uh, that attracted, you know, great people. And we had a magical culture that respected and celebrated uh, everyone. So I think it's that sort of magic product, you know, and magic culture coming together. Um, so, and it was kind of a, a paradox in the sense that you had magic um, in the sense of the product, but the culture was all about authenticity. Uh, and so bringing those two things together, you know, was quite magnetic. Um, I think contributing to it, you know, kind of keeping it going uh, was that, you know, customers were successful and, and there's nothing more delightful than to do something positive for a customer um, that they acknowledge and benefit from. And so really it, we were creating an upward virtuous cycle and it was kind of like a drug for employees and partners. Uh, we just yeah. all wanted more and more and more and more of it every day. Um, and then I think um, another big factor was there was a huge amount of trust uh, across the organization. 
um, and especially uh, uh, trusting uh, partners, which uh, is not only uh, important when you engage partners, but uh, also can be difficult. You know, a little side story, a true story. When I joined Citrix, there were about 50 people. The marketing uh, team was, was seven, including me. And we did have a, have a channel chief. And um, in the first staff meeting, he used some disrespectful language to describe partners. Um, in the second staff meeting, so the second week, he did it again. Um, after the staff meeting, I pulled him aside and I said, um, well, his name was Jay. I said, Jay, um, you know, you are in charge of our channels and building our channels, and yet you speak disrespectfully of, of our partners. And I don't see how you can be successful um, building trust and relationships with partners when you don't respect them. So um, have a nice day, uh, you know, and future and good, good luck to you. Um, and, you know, so trust was, you know, an essential sort of element, I think, of, uh, well, it is for any organization, but especially in those early days, and there was a tremendous amount of trust. And that went, you know, very strongly with the fact that we were also, you know, believers in what we, we were doing, because we knew it worked. Um, uh, many people were skeptical uh, when we would say, hey, here's what we can do. Uh, and then they tried it and they could tell we were telling the truth. And that was, you know, a great feeling that, um, you know, re reaffirmed the belief uh, that we had. So, you know, when I think back to uh, that time, um, we were all looking around, seeing partners successful, customers successful, and seeing ourselves professionally being successful and having fun, um, you know, uh, having families and developing. And, you know, there was just nothing about the picture to, to dislike. And, um, you know, like, uh, I, I always like to think of us as a, a great rock band, you know, that we were, you know, we were writing our own music um, that was a little bit different from, you know, the rest of the bands of the day. We were selling plenty of albums. Um, we were touring the world and we were, you know, we had a, we did have a bunch of roadies and we had uh, a, a heck of a lot of fun doing all of that. A great analogy. I'm sure Sam, you'd appreciate that one. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly is. And I, I think um, I, I feel like one of those roadies, Mark, from I think one of the highlights of my career was um, being on stage with you at Wembley, being your demo monkey and just praying because an hour before the demo wasn't working quite right to come out on stage and that the demo gods were with me <laughs> and they were <laughs> um, but it was it was it was magic and um you, you're talking about the ma delighting customers i started off 
um, being a tech evangelist and I used to get and customers and partners to unplug their fax machine and show them Winframe over a 28.8 modem link and, get, and they were just like, how does that work? It was, it was just delightful, absolutely delightful. But, what um, sorcery is this? Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So um, so you just reminiscing that has just brought that all back to me. Thank you so much. But you also talked about trust. And I think one of the things that drives us to do what we do at the Amplified Group is we appreciated so much what we had in, in those early days at Citrix, but we didn't, I think we almost took it for granted. We didn't really understand what it was that we had and why it was so special. And so trying to help organizations be more conscious about it now. Yeah. So just bringing it back to that culture, why do you think culture is so important? And do you think there's a recipe for it? We, well, you know, Vicky, I, you just sort of uh, reminded me of the fact that we did, we did, we did kind of take it for granted. And I remember as we grew, and you know, I would, um, you know, have lunch with new hires to try to meet new people coming in and so forth to the company. Um, you know, I. Uh, uh, you know, would sit down with a, a group of, uh, of of young people where it was their first job. And, uh, you know, and I said to them, you know, you're the, of, of everyone that's new, that's coming in, um, you're my biggest concern. And it's because you're going to think that all cultures and all work environments are like this. Um, and, you know, this is your first one and your only experience. And so what I want you to do is I want you to talk about your experience with some of the older timers and people who have worked other places so that you can gain a perspective on, you know, what, what makes the culture special. And because invariably you're going to have a bad day you're going to have a bad month or quarter you're going to have a bad boss uh you know i mean we were we were not perfect all right you're going to have a boss who's uh uh you know just not with it and we all know people join companies but they leave bosses you know and so um to get you through you know what i want you to do is understand how special the culture is and, you know, um, you'll get through it, you know, and uh, you'll get through a bad day or week or quarter. And we do measure the culture in a way where, you know, if you have a boss that's not really, you know, uh, up to snuff, we will do something about it. But that can take time, you know. Um, but, you know, culture is, um, firstly, I think you have to start with the definition uh, because people define it in so many ways. To me, culture is all about how people and companies get things done. And it's how they get things done based upon an underlying set of beliefs and principles and values that make them tick. Um, the difficulty is a lot of people can't write down 
um, their core beliefs, principles, and values uh, very well. I think as you get older, you're more uh, in tune uh, to that. Uh, and uh, when you're younger, uh, it's more difficult. And, you know, in software, the, the uh, uh, employee uh, population tends to be younger. Certainly, we were all younger uh, during the uh, years <laughs> that we were talking about, okay? And, um, and we did uh, write down our principles, beliefs, and values and use those things to build the culture. Um, and we did that by writing them down. So you have to be able to articulate them. And then we hired against them. We measured performance against them. We managed to them. And, um, and in doing that, it made achieving the common goals, um, uh, I think, pretty easy. And, but the biggest impact was it minimized the typical kinds of politics and turf battles you find uh, in a lot of companies. And, you know, if I, if I could put my finger on like one thing, um, well, let me just say it this way. When I got to Citrix the, the, and you, you asked someone, you know, there were only 50 people in the company. If, if you ask someone, you know, what's the culture here? They would say, oh, that's easy. We work hard, we play hard, we get results and we have fun doing all of that. I could, I could have said that with you then. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I yeah. could have repeated that mantra. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that funny? We all knew what you were going <laughs> to say there, coming. Mark. Yeah. No, I, think, I think you must have copied that from Softcat, surely. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he was so, so right. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. And it was lived and experienced yeah. daily. Exactly. But, yeah. then, but then to grow um, and scale that, you know, you had to define it in more discrete terms and ideas so that you could hire and evaluate, et cetera. So that, you know, it got, a, it, it had to get more, uh, uh, you know, sophisticated in terms of a system to replicate. But, you know, one of the things that I think made us, made the culture tick more than any single thing is that we accepted hierarchy as a necessary evil of managing complexity and that it was never a proxy for respect. Yeah. So that, you know, because you go to so many places and, you know, the bigger your title, the more respect you get and the lesser or the lesser your title, the lesser respect you get. And we, we kept respect and hierarchy separate and I think that if that if there was one thing that um, made made it made the recipe work, I think it it, it was that. That's a lovely yeah. way of putting it. It, it is, that. and yeah, and I've got I've got a reciprocal story on that, which is a bit ridiculous. And Sam, I was telling you this the other day. Um, in terms of respect, so Mark, you just had all our respect, mm -hmm. just leading by example. But the the reciprocation, the fact that we felt like we could approach you. And the story that I was telling Sam the other day was I thought my career had made it when I went to my first Citrix event in the States as a partner, as a DISTI. And then a few years later, 
I met you on on a corridor outside one of the breakout rooms and I'd got my first Citrix shirt as a speaker and I was so chuffed about it and so proud about it and I came running up to you to tell you and I felt like I could do that I mean what CEO can you do that with I mean it was just incredible well it goes back to the rock band um, metaphor you know we not only did we believe we were this great rock band, we didn't believe in rock stars. Okay. So, which is sort of a characteristic of the tech industry, you know, wanting to find a rock star to give all the credit to and to focus all of the company's, you know, energy on, et cetera. And yet just, I never believed that. I never believed in that because, uh, Honestly, I pride myself in, in being honest, <laughs> and I knew I knew who was actually doing the work and making things happen. I knew where the ideas came from, uh, you know, and I was blessed to have such an incredible team around me uh, that um, you know shared their thinking, etc. And I got to sort of you know soothsay around those things and. It, you know, and advance them. Uh, so, you know, uh, I'd say in my experience in working with, uh, you know, private companies, public companies, you know, just single entrepreneurs is they don't really uh, typically understand culture. They, they think culture is the poster that's on the wall. Okay. And, um, and the poster that's on the wall, you know, was a, an HR or a marketing or a collaborative project that was done. And it probably has some meaning, but it doesn't have the, you know, the, the power of defining a culture that when you defined it as we did around human values. So, you know, the recipe the way I would describe the recipe is, first of all, it, you have to start at the top, okay, um, both of the organization, but at the top of uh, the stack of ideas um, with honorable intent. Um, all good things in the world uh, have to start with honorable intent. And then you have to have a very low tolerance for variance around the beliefs and principles and values, um, you know, and as I said earlier, you know, you're gonna hire, evaluate, uh, and, and great cultures, the way you can tell a great culture is they, a great culture will reject a, a, a misfit. Um, it can take some time, you know, and it takes paying attention um, and then, you know, uh, you then rinse and repeat year after year. Um, and unfortunately, um, uh, just like all so-called simple recipes, they're difficult to master. And so, you know, you have to practice uh, them, you know, just practice, practice, practice every single day uh, and keep coming back to the, to the basics. Yeah, thank you. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that practice a, a, a little bit later. But um, one other thing we wanted to ask you is we recorded a podcast earlier in the series with um, D. 
the EMEA VP of Twilio, David Perry Jones, and he's also he was a leader at Microsoft and he was a leader at VMware. But now he's at Twilio. Um, he talked about the importance of belonging, um, and I know this is important for you as well. So, can you just talk to us a bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'm not an expert uh, on psychology. Um, you know, most of my experience there is just, you know, working with so many people in an organization through so many situations. And, you know, that's your sort of on, um, I'm an OJT psychologist on the job trained. Um, but, you know, I, I came to truly believe uh, that uh, people are, you know, more fundamentally motivated by the self-actualization that comes from being part of something that's bigger than they are. Yeah. I mean, you know, at, at Citrix, um, we felt like, okay, we had to pay competitively. Um, we had to uh, make sure people had good qualified managers, uh, of course, uh, but that's not why they stayed, you know. Um, the, the reason people stayed is by having a big goal that they could believe in and, um, and felt like they belonged, you know, to, to, you know, a team that was doing something worthy and they knew how to contribute to it. Yeah. So if uh, any of your listeners uh, are fans of Simon Sinek, who uh, wrote the, the great book, Start With Why, yeah. you know, you'll remember his lesson is people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and belonging is all about uh, sharing a common why. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you share a common why, then you'll, people naturally follow and when people naturally follow you know they they therefore belong <laughs> and that sense of belonging feels good and uh, it gets them up before the alarm clock goes off every day yeah and and it goes back to what you were saying as well about then you're delighting your customers right yeah uh, yeah. yeah I mean yeah. yeah I think you know the the uh, the belonging, I would say, it, just to uh, speak more directly about Citrix, uh, extended uh, to partners and customers. Yeah, because when you, if you think back, you know, our, uh, the, 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 old, the whole idea of, you know, virtual apps and desktops and a virtual workplace was pretty, you know, people were reasonably cynical, et cetera. And it, and it took a, a unique individual as a customer to take the risk to, to try it and to become a customer. And so they, they saw the magic as well and they felt they belonged and partners felt they belonged. So, you know, I always thought of us as, you know, a company of, you know, whatever number we were sort of at the top of the pyramid, you know, we had custom partners that relied on us and belonged. And then they had customers that relied on them that belonged. So the, our 
impact and reach on belonging was just was massive and we saw that when we held you know customer and partner events you know in terms of the number of people that would uh, come and we saw it in the in the engagement and enthusiasm too yeah mark i've always been in the partner side of the business and um you know looked after the emea um, partner ecosystem and you talked about trust earlier and and my goodness you know if there was ever a partner ecosystem that had trust in their vendor it was definitely with citrix and that's got gave me a huge amount of confidence whenever i went into a, a meeting with the partner because i didn't have to think about that you know that was just a second nature so you talked about looking back if we were to to look back on your time and if if god forbid you were to start again um, <laughs> what advice would you maybe give your younger self mm. can you maybe share with us any lessons that you would perhaps even do differently well um uh you know i'm i'm i tend not to be a woulda coulda shoulda person uh you know so um this is a tough one i don't really think that way um but you know what I would do is, and uh, to you know give you at least an answer, is um, I would uh, give the advice you know that I followed, um, and um, so the first first uh, thing that and, and all the all of these things were learned you know um, um, along the way so. First of all, uh, you know, follow your heart. I, I mean, so people hear that, they say it's cliche. No, there's something called the limbic brain, okay? It's the analog part of your brain and it aligns with what's in your heart. People describe it, you know, as what they feel in their heart. So it's where your instinct is, you know, it's where uh, you, maybe you, you don't do the math um, as much as you, you know, do the emotional calculus. So that would be the first um, advice that I would give to anyone uh, that's uh, their younger self. Um, the second uh, is super important and that is be honest with yourself about yourself. Um, you know, uh, there's so many people that I've seen, you know, hired, managed, etc., that just are not honest enough with themselves in order to embrace their weaknesses so that they can surround themselves with complementary people and also um, develop themselves in the proper places. And that only comes from um, uh, knowing uh, yourself and being honest about it. You know, my mother um, uh, always uh, taught us that the po most powerful thing that you can be is yourself. But um, that requires knowing who you are. Um, uh, so that, that would be the second thing. I'd say the third thing is, um, sounds obvious, um, but um, I think uh, it's important to be very consciously 
uh, diligent about it, and that is learn from mistakes. Um, uh, it makes mistakes have value. So if a mistake is a negative one, let's say, um, then um, you, you need to make a positive two out of it so that whatever you were trying to do that you failed at, you know, you not only, you know, get back to even, you can, you, you get ahead by, you know, having made the mistake. And, you know, for younger people, um, keep in mind that the earlier in life that you make the mistakes that you learn from, the longer you have to compound interest, the value of that mistake. And that there's, means, there's the pearl of wisdom I was talking about <laughs> right at the beginning. That is spot on. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I had good fortune in that regard. Um, but, uh, um, and then um, uh, I'd say the last sort of piece of sort of core advice I'd give to young people uh, that came very naturally to me for uh, a few you know, reasons, and that is to find role models to mimic. Um, and, you know, because, you know, why reinvent the wheel? You know, there's no purpose in reinventing the wheel. And so when, uh, you, when you, when you uh, find a role model to mimic, you know, you're skipping over you know, trying to uh, invent something, uh, either a behavior or a way of doing things and so forth. And you're able to put your energy in um, uh, the, the right place and that is innovation. Um, I don't consider inventing wheels to be innovation, right? Yeah, yeah. I always used to describe myself as, as an amalgam of all of the people that I'd learned from that had managed me, that had coached me, that I'd had meetings alongside, and you know, yes. my my persona was the little bits that I'd collected from all of those wonderful people I'd learned from on my way through. If that makes any sense. Yeah, you know, I mean, related to this question um, and what you just said is, you know, that amalgam was pulled put together over some span of time. Yes, so, true. so imagine whatever that amalgam of people, you know, was, if you could line them up, you know, outside your door on one day and have them come in and give you, you know, the advice that they would give you all on one day. Yeah. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to absorb it. Right. So, so the way I, uh, you know, uh, like to think about this is it's the same thing with your children. You know, you don't, you don't want to um, deny the, the right uh, to have the experience of a failure um, in order to learn from a mistake. Uh, and the same thing goes for advice. You just can't, you know, pile on advice when someone is young it would be like um you know uh it's 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 the metaphor i like to use if you if you put a picture of 
of a piece of cheese on a mouse trap, do you know what you catch? A picture of a mouse. Okay. So, you know, so if you load up advice, um, you know, it, it, you, you, you give people a lot of theoretical information, but it doesn't really, um, it's not really that valuable. So in the end, you know, true experiences and mistakes, holding yourself accountable, um, accumulating scar tissue, and, uh, and then, you know, sometimes you're also in the right place at the right time, because, you know, you can look at two people, you know, that have equal everything, IQ, EQ, etc. But one person just has more blessings and luck around, you know, being in the right place at the right time. You know, one of my favorite movies um, is Sliding Doors, okay? And it is all about um, how a split second in a life where, a where either you have to make a choice or you get blocked, you know, from a direction for a, a split second can, can truly change, you know, the course of a life. And... Um, so, uh, you know, so being in the right place at the right time does matter. You were talking earlier about uh, lessons learned and about people that you've worked with being able to identify, know themselves. And, and as you know, we practice Patrick Lencioni's methodology, which goes back to your point earlier as well about not reinventing the wheel. This is a really smart methodology, but how do we take this and make it really relevant to the people that we work with and um, when we first set out on this journey I remember um, being in touch with you and you sharing with us that you'd also um, followed the methodology at, at some point at Citrix and um, you told me about the red eye about coming over to Citrix I forum in Edinburgh and reading the book yes um, and so what I'm just really keen for you to share with our listeners actually is, is what you think about the methodology and how relevant you think it is and why you think that trust piece is, is such a strong foundation um yeah it's definitely a true story and i'd say um his book the five dysfunctions of a team uh, is the most powerful business book i've ever read um it was given to me by someone I trust very much, who's a, an executive recruiter, who's still a very good friend of mine and helped me uh, a lot, you know, across my career. And, you know, first of all, when he gave me the book and I read the title, I looked up and I said, Eric, are you telling me my team is dysfunctional? And he said, Mark, I'm not telling you anything. <laughs> what I'm telling you is this is a great book that I think, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get a lot of value from. So, um, you know, I'm not a voracious reader, never have been uh, one of those types to read books and recommend them. And so, you know, I put it in my briefcase and, um, and a couple weeks later, uh, we were having our iForum event in Edinburgh. And um, usually I sleep on the red eye. Uh, and usually the best way for me to sleep is to read a book. 
<laughs> to try to, to start reading, okay? Yeah. So I started reading the book and I couldn't sleep. No, you couldn't put and, it down a bit. <laughs> right, I couldn't put it down. And the reason I couldn't put it down is, um, and, and I think it happens to a lot of people, is you see yourself and the people around you in the characters of the book. So you can say, okay, that's, you know, Joe, and that's Mary, and that's Alice, and that's Charlie, and so forth. Um, and that, which makes it very powerful, you know, as a read, but also as, uh, as you know, a way to learn. So um, it really exposed the, the dysfunction I had on the team. And, uh, 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 you know, my first team. And it was uh, preventing us, I could see, from being truly great. And the timing of that book was, it was given to me approximately six months after we had launched the X1 project. And so we had a goal that had a definitive amount of time and therefore, uh, you know, we had to have a bias toward acting and anything that was slowing us down uh, was a real problem. So um, uh, I got to Edinburgh. Uh, I, you know, got on the dial-up connection and um, uh, got on Amazon, ordered the book for everyone on, on the executive team uh, sent it to them, uh, set up uh, a meeting to do the exercise in the book, and um, uh, and it revealed a lot. Um, and, you know, uh, I walked out of the exercise meeting, and I'm thinking, you know, we're trying to go from 500 million to a billion in three years. Um, it was a huge undertaking that ha- would have a major impact on so many thousands of lives. When you think of employees and their families, partners and their families, and so forth, and um, uh, we knew because we had uh, some advice from a consulting firm uh, that it required flawless execution. So, um, you know, I realized two of the the execs weren't really on the team. So a couple of weeks after the exercise, I, you know, took on what was a gut-wrenching decision, probably the most gut-wrenching decision of my career uh, at the time uh, to let them go and uh, reassign their responsibilities um, and uh, to move ahead. And you know, um, and even to this day, when I think back to the circumstance, I wouldn't, I would do it again. I wouldn't do it any differently. Um, and, um, you know, we exceeded a billion in 2006. And it's largely because we eliminated the dysfunction at the top of the organization, uh, which um, it turns out energized and inspired the rest of the team because you know, when an executive team is dysfunctional, uh, 
you know, it flows downward in the sense of, you know, it creates bad behaviors in the organization. And when, uh, and everyone knows it, there are no secrets. And so when, when, if you're CEO and you fix it, um, it sends a message that you care. It sends a message that functional, uh, being functional matters, trust matters. Okay. And, um, and you're, you're going to make hard decisions when uh, there's a lack of trust. And, and uh, so it was interesting to see how, you know, doing that impacted in a positive way, um, the entire company. Yeah, we we talk about setting the tone from the top. And also, um, Lencioni also says, if there is a degree of separation in the leadership team, then as that comes down, well, that's how, that's why your silos form. And, and that's exactly what we work to. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's a, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a physicist, um, you know, the, uh, uh, but I think one of the laws of physics is that uh, in business is that actions from the top of the company are exponentially multiplied by the time they get to the first line, uh, you know, sort of person. So some of the simplest, you think some of the simplest decisions you're making at the top can have very highly amplified reverberating effects, you know, through the organization. And I think that a lot of teams can sometimes not be conscious of that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it's such an endorsement for the model. And, you know, they talk about it being simple and not simplistic. And it it is, we always say, don't we, Vicky, this, this model is not rocket science, but it is the most, you know, you talked about the book. Um, being, you know, the best business book you've read. For us, this model just resonated as soon as we came across it. We're also now really seeing it with our clients, aren't we? And the impact that it's having on them is just... Totally, yeah. It's it's that delighting our customers that we talked about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we'll probably talk about this more. uh, But, you know, um, and maybe your business isn't old enough yet. But, you know, I found that this lesson of, uh, of, of demanding and, and, and keeping teams functional is a constant process. It's not like, you know, oh, I have two broken people and I need to change them out and now I've got a functional team. So I'm check, I'm done, you yeah. know. It's it, it it there's a whole maintenance to it, and then um, you have to learn it over and over and over again. So yes. I I'd say you know refreshers, you, you know on this are are good things for for uh, leadership teams to to do. Yeah, and we we will touch on it later. But what you've just described there is what we call organizational fitness. So you're constantly working. Keep fit and keeping training, keeping fit. Yeah. 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 Well, we've covered an enormous amount of ground thus far. I think it might be time to draw us towards a break and 
the conclusion of episode one of our chat with Mark. But just before we go, Shah, I think it might be hero time. It might be indeed. So, Mark, um, I don't know whether you are familiar with this section of the podcast, but uh, we always like to ask our guests who their hero is. And obviously, from the way Vicky and I have been so still and so well behaved on this podcast, uh, you're obviously one of our heroes for sure. I'm going to tell a tiny little story, if I may. So I was very privileged to become a most valued player at one of the sales um, events. And I got to go to Hawaii with my husband. And, you know, I was fairly uh, low down in the food chain at that point at Citrix. I'd not been there long, but I was very proud to be the, the MVP. And I got off the bus with my husband and you walked up to me and said, hey, Shah, great to see you here. And I thought, how on earth does Mark Templeton know who I am? And uh, you, you just have a, a, an impact on, on people that you don't even know you, you, you have. So you're definitely one of our heroes. Um, so with that, um, for our listeners that don't know, Hero Time is about a, a brand. We call him Hero. He's our brand at the Amplified Group. Um, he wears a cape. And uh, it's about making our clients the heroes. And so with that, Mark, we ask everybody just to give us a flavor of maybe somebody who's your hero or somebody that has motivated you. Now, I know you've got a, a breadth of experience, so that might be difficult to narrow it down. But if you could share some, that would be super. Oh, goodness. Well, first of all, um, thanks for the kind words. I, um, you know, I'm really proud of that MVP program. Um, uh, not only because it uh, uh, it was a way for the organization to really be honest about giving credit to people who made extraordinary contributions without um, uh, respect to you know a title or a position and so forth. All right, so. Um, and I was really proud, you know, of how we went about making the decision, um, yeah, because you know the MVP spots were um, few, um, in fact. Uh, so, you know, the the sales team would make their recommendations. They would write down, you know, why the you know, a particular person was being nominated, et cetera. Uh, the, they would narrow it down and then I would sit down with them and go through what their recommendations were, you know? And uh, so when you showed up, you know, getting off the bus, I knew uh, what your contribution had been. And I think that, um, you know, that was just sort of my small, way of contributing to the process, but, you know, I was always cognizant of the fact that we were a band and, you know, you got to have every, you know, you got to have people who set up the equipment. You got to have people who, you know, uh, make all the arrangements for the tour. You have to have people playing instruments, writing music, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, there's so many roles and when you're missing one, the performance uh, is diminished, right? 
So, um, so thanks for reminding me of that and uh, those kind words. And you know, I, I I would always tell MVPs when they came up on stage, I not only thank them, I thank them for being, you know, in a rare uh, group in the company because these are the hardest. They in fact were the hardest awards to win um, because all the other ones were objectively measured based upon, uh, you know, uh, how uh, you exceeded quotas. Um, so. Uh, so congratulations uh, once again. Thank Michelle. you. <laughs> but this is this is really the toughest question of all um, because you know um, I've always relied on great role models and mentors and and each of them um, was and is still a hero to me. You know, they engaged and taught me unconditionally because that's what heroes do. You know they do good things for others without any condition. Um, it's the Good Samaritan that uh, here in Florida, a, a family that was visiting ran off the road into one of those uh, uh, gullies that are there to drain water. Their car was upside down. A Good Samaritan jumped in the water uh, and uh, held a little four-year-old girl's head above water until the, the fire department could come and um, you know, lift the lift the automobile, and uh, that's what heroes do. You know, they they're doing something that maybe puts themselves in danger, but they're doing something good, you know, unconditionally for others. And I think that's part of the definition of a of great leadership, of great colleagues, being a great parent, being a great sibling or friend. So. You know, there are so many um, uh, in one's life. Uh, it's hard to, you know, put your finger on just one, uh, one for sure. But uh, you know, I mean, Roger Roberts, who was my predecessor, uh, CEO at Citrix, uh, is clearly one of my heroes, um, uh, and uh, because he taught me so much. He encouraged me. Um, he talked straight to me. Uh, was honest with me in good times and in bad. Um, so he's clearly, you know, one of my, you know, most memorable heroes. Another one is Tom Bogan, who served as uh, chairman of the board of Citrix for many years, and uh, Tom. Uh, was, you know, always gave sage advice. I uh, could call him uh, and talk with him when I had some of the most difficult, unsolvable problems, whether they were, sometimes they were personal, um, and but most of the times they were professional. And he would listen, uh, he would um, ask, you know, Socratic type sort of questions uh, and help me, you know, kind of solve my problem myself or make me feel like I solved my, my problem myself uh, and teach me all at the same time. So Tom is, a, uh, is clearly a, a hero of mine. Um, and um, 
you know, I have other heroes, you know, for other reasons. Um, uh, uh, Winston Churchill is one of my heroes. I've read, you know, uh, kind of all the biographies and I've read all of his works that he authored. Um, uh, and he's a hero uh, in my mind because he's the person we have to thank for uh, Western civilization as we know it today. And, um, and without his, um, you know, leadership um, wouldn't exist. And when you actually read um, his words and you read about him, um, his grandson uh, uh, wrote a biography uh, on him, you know, his vulnerability uh, is exposed and kind of his authenticity is exposed and, and all. And you just see how valuable that is um, in a leader uh, and, um, uh, and clearly a hero for a lot of people. So those are the, those are the ones that, you know, come to mind that are specific, but just look at the, look around the world today, you know, I mean, if you're a frontline healthcare worker, if you're a scientist working on a vaccine, if you're a, a small business person trying to keep your small team employed and keep your business afloat, you're a hero, you know, you're doing, you're, you're doing uh, good things unconditionally. And, you know, for me, um, you know, I tend to uh, see silver linings in clouds. I, I don't see the darkness, I see the silver. And in the same way, I see the heroics um, in just everyday people, um, you know, and uh, so that's why the, this is a hard question for me. Yeah, beautifully said. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you sharing that with us. My pleasure. So thank you for listening to this special episode of Get Amplified from the Amplified Group. I say this every time, but of course your comments and your subscriptions are always gratefully received. And make sure you catch part two when we will continue our conversation with the legend that is Mark Templeton. to edit this hold on <laughs> the girls the girls have to the girls, the girls are getting rounded up to go to the salon <laughs> they, want, they didn't want to miss out from featuring on the podcast <laughs> okay yeah and, and uh so that and uh they like to hang around me so uh they were they were coming to get retrieved and they're <laughs> going under my desk and all that stuff